On a Hill Too Far Away, 15 Protestant Truths About the Death of God the Son. This is part five. A long title, not a long study, just a long title. Three things that I want to try and uh, cover tonight. Jesus Christ died to abolish both the ritual of circumcision and the earthly priesthood by becoming the eternal high priest of all those who come to him in saving faith. It's a ridiculously long title, I guess. But it does kind of sum up where I think we want to go tonight. There are these three texts. I'll talk about each one, and that'll kind of cover the, uh, the study the way I want to do it tonight. The first, Paul's words in his letter to the churches of Galatia, in Galatians 6, 14 and 15, where Paul says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world, for... And, and it's strange that he moves from, you know, these glorious kind of uh, otherworldly truths about the cross of Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world... For, and it's as though this has something to do with it in his mind. For, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's the first text. The second is Hebrews 9, 24, 25, 26. For Christ has entered into the holy places... Sorry... For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. So not into holy holy places made with hands. What's he talking about there? Holy places made with hands would refer to the temple. Tabernacle in the wilderness. The temple. The Holy of Holies. These spots where uh, the presence of God was manifest in a special way. He says Christ came, died on the cross, and he didn't didn't move into a temple, and he didn't move into uh, a a building somewhere with a certain kind of lighting or, or incense or structures or altars or places of sacred washings and waters. He's not in places like that anymore and never ever will be again. I say that because years ago, it's not as, it's not as common now, but in the Pentecostal circles and in other denominations as well, we grew up in a system where there was a strong, it was called dispensationalism, and I'm not going to get into it in a big way tonight. But the whole idea was that once again... When Jesus comes, there's going to be this temple again, and God will dwell in a temple again, and will work through the temple and a specific ethnic group of people and sacrifices. And I want to say to you, never, ever, ever again is God going to dwell in an earthly temple. All right? It's never going to happen. Not ever. For Christ 
has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies. That's all they are. Copies of the true things. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. Christ didn't come to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. With blood not his own. So the priest would come, but there'd be no representation for human sin because bulls and goats don't sin. They might have nasty dispositions and bad instincts, but they don't sin against the law of God the way people do. And so the unique thing about Christ, of course, is he comes as a human being. He takes on our flesh, lives life sinlessly, and then dies in our place, but he can represent us as one of us in a way that bulls and goats never could. They're just creatures. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. Not human blood, the high priest in the Old Testament. That's not what he had. Animal blood. So there's no atonement for human sin. That's the point there. For then, if he did that, he'd have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So there's the contrast between bulls and goats and animals and himself. Hebrews 10, 9 to 14. Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, and you have to jump into the middle of a thought here, the the first and the second covenant. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. And that's a very unusual way of putting it. We think of being justified once for all, and we think we are being sanctified. And so when the writer says, by that will we have been sanctified, past tense, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. And every high priest, thinking now of the old covenant, every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single Offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice the end of verse 10. We have been sanctified. Notice at the end of 14, we are being sanctified, which is true. Well, both are true, and I'll I'll talk about that in a minute. 
What I'm saying in that long kind of convoluted title is the death of Jesus has consequences that go beyond uh, the merely individual person and changes that are beyond merely internal. So I place my trust in Jesus and I am saved. That's an individual reality, something that happens in me and to me as an individual because of Christ's death. And what I'm trying to say is that's true, but there were larger changes, larger in the sense of the community of God's people, the church of God, not just me individually, but it, it affected things. It affected the way we do things in our approach to God, all of us together. So Christ's death affects forever the worship and practices of the collective people of God here on earth. The church, that's us. The body of Christ. It's birthed in Christ's death and resurrection from the dead. And the church is fundamentally a, a new organism created not by man, but by God through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the way the church approaches Father God is not left to human ingenuity or human opinion. God, from the beginning of creation, had a plan, a goal in mind for the church, the people of God. And, and it has its roots in the sinless life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to focus tonight on just two changes, two massive changes, ongoing issues in terms of their shaping power on the uh, practice of the church of Jesus Christ. The first is, the first is the external place of ritual, law-keeping, ceremony, the example Paul is using is circumcision because it was the dominant practice under the old covenant by which the people of God were identified. And, and, and the ritual was commanded by God and it was essential, right? And so there's this massive shift where that kind of ritual, Paul's going to say, is no longer essential. It's no longer the case that people approach God by those outward ceremonies. That's a big change. It's a huge change. The second is the role of the earthly priesthood. The role of the earthly priesthood in enabling the approach of sinful people into the presence and grace of our God. And what I'm wanting to show tonight, and it won't take that long, what I'm wanting to show tonight is that the death of Jesus brought about permanent, radical changes that go beyond just me and my relationship with God, but radical changes in both the outward rituals required or not required and the earthly priesthood and the way that fits into salvation and church life. Point number one. Since Jesus died and rose again, no outward Ceremony is probably a better word than exercise. Ceremony or ritual can ever again be granted saving status for mankind. 
None of them can be granted saving status. It doesn't mean that there aren't things we can do that can be aids to our, 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 uh, our understanding, our mental approach, aids in remembering, aids in picturing. I'm not saying there's no place for any kind of, of tradition in the body of Christ. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you can't grant these things saving status. They are not essential in the sense of without them, Christ can't save you at all. And the key issue that comes up over and over and over again in the New Testament as it relates to the old is this issue of circumcision. Peter and Paul fought over it. The early church wrestled with it. We're going to look at the text. And the reason they did is we cannot easily even imagine how much of a flashpoint this issue was for the early church because the one who commanded circumcision was God. Genesis 17:10. Jesus himself was a Jew. The first apostles were all Jews. The Jewish Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was the only scripture that they had. It still is a valid part of our Bibles. And then Gentiles started getting saved. Non-Jewish people started getting saved. The, The covenant, the promise God gave to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed started being fulfilled And the Jewish people did not like that. Gentiles began to get saved, and this created enormous problems because none of them was circumcised, and none of them were about to be circumcised. And God, it seemed, wasn't commanding any of them to be circumcised. Now that they had come to faith in Jesus Christ, who died for their sins... What what was their relationship to these rituals of the Old Covenant, these signs of the Old Covenant? Did circumcision still have saving value after the death and resurrection of Jesus? It all came to a head in Antioch of Syria. It's in Acts 15. Let me just read quick. Verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. I mean, the law of Moses... The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. Giving them, that's the Gentiles. Giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. Peter remembered the household of Cornelius and how they were all baptized in the Holy Spirit, began to speak in tongues. Verse 9, And he, God, made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Verse 11, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. That's interesting, because now they're turning it around. Peter's talking about the Jews. We believe we will be saved... Through the grace of our Lord Jesus, even the Jews aren't going to be saved by circumcision. Not after Jesus comes. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. All the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related 
what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so, so Peter says circumcision served a religious purpose only until Jesus came and died and rose again. Peter calls those events, Jesus coming and dying and rising again, he calls that the word of the gospel in verse 8. And he says that since that time, since the word of the gospel was proclaimed, he says both Jews and Gentiles are saved by believing the same message. That's what he says in verse 8. But we believe that we will be saved, we, that's the Jews, we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. In other words, there's this massive change. The sign of circumcision was to mark off God's Old Testament people. It was through that people that the Messiah would come into this world and be born. And when he came and was born, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended and intercedes for all the people of God, that old covenant people, we had the Old Testament, we have the coming of the Messiah, and that sign that kept them distinct and separate is no longer necessary. Why? Well, because everybody, Jew and Gentile, verse 11, everybody's going to be saved, whether they're Jew, whether they're Gentile, through believing the message, the message about Jesus. There's no purpose in marking off a smaller group when now the fulfillment of the prophecy to Abraham that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through the Redeemer. It proved God's acceptance of doing what God said on God's own terms. Circumcision was preparatory. It separated one people from everyone else just as, this is why, circumcision of the heart. So it's not just for, it's not just for men anymore. It's for men and for women. The circumcision of the heart, you see. Just as it separated one people from everyone else in the Old Testament, in the same way the church would be called separate from the world around it, it modeled obedience to the command of the Lord and it still models the obedience required from all of God's people. It proved the people's acceptance of doing what God said on God's own terms just as the church doesn't invent its own message or the means of salvation. There was nothing seeker-sensitive about circumcision. It just shows obedience to the ways of God and God's message on God's terms. So in all these ways, circumcision modeled the kind of trust and obedience that would one day be finalized and complete, completed in obediently receiving on God's own terms his final plan of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Only now the circumcision was an outward circumcision of the flesh. It was an inward circumcision of the heart but it was based on the same kind of trust and obedience that was demonstrated in Old Testament circumcision. Only now it was for all people. The New Testament, interesting, I hadn't planned it this way, but the New Testament repeatedly marks this contrast between two kinds of circumcision, one passing away and one 
eternally abiding and life producing. The text we read this morning, Philippians 2, 2 and 3, where Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul says there is a true circumcision and there's a false circumcision. And the bottom line is, false circumcision puts its confidence just in the sign. The true circumcision, the inward circumcision in the heart puts all its confidence in Christ. goes beyond just circumcision, though. People all over the world, in all sorts of religions, have their different kinds of outward circumcision. They have altars, they have idols, they have statues. Many are still relying on outward circumcision itself. There are fountains, special waters, incense, and a host of other things. Since Christ has come and died and risen from the grave, none of those things has value to save the soul. None of them. Worship itself has been transformed from special signs and special places to faith in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember Jesus' conversation with that woman at the well? John 4, 20 to 24. He says, our fathers, she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the from the Jews, it has its start. It was through Abraham and the Jewish nation. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The big line is, the hour is coming and is now here. 23. Jesus, in his own person, he marks the great Uh, Time change in the worship customs for God's people. It's all tied up in him, his death and resurrection. Why be so picky, Pastor Don? Why just leave people alone? Each one in his own way, as long as they're sincere. Just just let everybody kind of do their thing with God. Climb up the mountain from all sorts of angles. As long as you get to the top and God is up there, what do you care about how they get up the mountain? Well, Paul says, Paul says that these roads to God, there's Christ and there is confidence in the flesh. We're dealing tonight with circumcision, but confidence in the flesh Uh, The practice of one's own religious system, one's own beliefs. Different religions with different ways and and different sacred books and and different routines and different rituals. Let people just do their own thing. And, And what Paul says is, these are mutually exclusive. You can't mix these, Paul says. 
It's like, you ever do those uh, surveys on a computer? Sometimes I do applications for people and there'll be something in an email and you fill them out and then you're supposed to mark one of the dots and you mark the dot and if you change your mind and you go to mark this dot, you don't get both. When you select one, you deselect the other. You know what I'm talking about? That's what we're talking about here. When you select one approach to God, you deselect all the others. This is what Paul means when he says, Galatians 5, 1 and 2, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, listen, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you're going to go down the road of your own performance... You can't tick the box with Jesus in it, too. When you rely on Christ, you rely on him exclusively. Point number two. I want to talk to you now about... So that's circumcision, outward ritual, and routines that are made requirements for reaching God. That is gone. It is gone forever in Jesus Christ. Now, point number two. Since Jesus Christ died and rose again, the office of the earthly priesthood as a human doorway to Father God is forever abolished. I have seen, uh, I still remember uh, an Easter video that showed uh, depicting uh, an earthquake, an earthquake, big earthquake, and then the next thing you saw was the veil of the temple being torn from top to bottom. And when I got home, I was going through Matthew, and it's very significant. If, if that was the sequence of events, you could almost maybe get it in your head that it was the earthquake that caused this massive rip in this heavy veil in the temple. But when you go and read Matthew, he's very specific as to what happened. That the first thing that happens when Jesus dies is the veil is ripped from top to bottom. And after the veil is torn, there's this massive earthquake. And the earthquake is almost a sign of something God just did when he tore the veil of the temple from top to bottom. And so you couldn't possibly, you couldn't possibly make the mistake of thinking that, well, the earthquake, maybe that was the cause of the tearing of the temple veil. This is the significance of the heavy curtain in the temple being torn from top to bottom. Something, something was being opened up that had been closed up to that time. And what it means today is this, that no earthly priest or pope or any other religious leader, no earthly priest makes an opening to God's presence for you, the sinner. It means that there's no longer only a few who can come into the presence of God But all can come through Christ Jesus. And that change took place very significantly at the exact moment of Christ's death. His death was 
the one sacrifice that rocked the world more than all the earthquakes ever could. And this is wonderful news. It is wonderful news. It transforms the entire world of religion. It changes mankind's approach to God. The rules are suddenly different forever. And when you see how the New Testament describes it, let me read you a couple passages. Hebrews 9, 24 to 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once, once for all, at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here's another one. I read this at the beginning. Nine Hebrews 10, 9 to 14. And then he, Jesus, added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Remember that phrase. I said I'd talk about it. We have been been sanctified. We have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus once for all. And every earthly priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's one precious truth packed up in that disclaimer in verse 11. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. If those sacrifices could have actually taken away sins, if those sacrifices could never take away sins and yet God still honored those sacrifices, then if God's just, he must, have had, he must have had something else in mind where he would honor those sacrifices which the writer says, everybody knows those sacrifices didn't remove the people's sins. And if God still honored them, and if God is just, then God must have had something else in his mind when he honored those sacrifices. And that's it exactly. Jesus is the completion of all those sacrifices. He's the completion of all those earthly priests who had always been sinful in themselves. Jesus is eternal, where those earthly priests are mortal, grow old, and die. Jesus suffered for us in those grand old words from Hebrews, once for all. When I was just a small boy... My mother, it's usually my mother, I went and saw her last week, and she doesn't, she doesn't know who I am anymore. And I, I still go and see her, 
I buy her a little chocolate bar because she really likes chocolate, and I take her a little chocolate bar, and we sit and talk for a little bit. And she doesn't know who she's talking to, and I don't know what she's talking about much of the time. But I try and leave, and every time I do, I try and think back, because that's not, you know, that's not really my mom. Not mom the way I remember her. And when I was just a small boy, it was my mom who would almost always come up and pray with us at night. And every night she led me to pray that Jesus would forgive my sins. There were four Corbin boys in the family. And we were together all day. And I think my parents just assumed that whenever four boys are together all day, it's just a good thing at the end of the day to ask for sins to be forgiven. Because there surely would have been a lot of sins somewhere along the way. And I was thinking about it the other day. I, I, I never did anything but assume that Jesus would and did forgive my sins whenever Mom and I would pray and I asked Jesus to forgive my sins. I never had a doubt for a minute that my sins would be forgiven. Now, I wasn't in church. There was no altar. And my mother was not a priest. Jesus did the forgiving, and I was able to come to him at any time because that was what the death on the cross accomplished. And there's a lot to rejoice in that, church. There's a lot to rejoice in that. One other thing, and this is what I want to close with. I said I wanted to deal with that. The way it talks about we have been sanctified, we have been sanctified, and then perfecting forever those who are being sanctified in that Hebrews 10 text. Which is it? And there's something so encouraging here that I thought this is the truth to leave people with. And the idea is this. That what Jesus accomplished on the cross, the record of my past sins, we call that justification. The record of my past sins is cleansed and erased. Okay? And that's a legal aspect. Sanctification generally, they overlap, but generally when we talk about sanctification, we talk about the the process of becoming Christ-like, holy, day by day, in greater measure. And that's why it's interesting the way you get these two pictures in Hebrews 10 of we have been sanctified and forever are being sanctified. And here's what I take from that. What I take from that is this. That there is nothing iffy or tentative or half-hearted in God's desire to keep shaping my life more and more into the image of Christ. That as I keep my trust in him, as I abide in him, I never have to worry. I never have to worry that God is going to give up on remaking Don Horbin. Because you know what that's like if there's someone you're concerned about someone you're trying to change and you try and you try and you try and you realize it's just not going to work and, and relationships that we realize just 
we can't make work, and so you have divorce, you have all sorts of things. I'm not, I'm not condemning anybody. I'm just saying that there's the human side where you think you can change someone or something, and you can't. What I'm saying to you tonight is that God, God never, ever, ever will renege on his promise. He who began a good work in you is going to keep working on it. And it doesn't depend on you being anything special. It depends on his own faithfulness. That it's as good as being completely sanctified now as you keep your trust in him. There is nothing about you that God is it's going to make God give up on you. Believers are eternally secure. You heard it here tonight in a Wesleyan church. Believers are eternally secure. Just keep your trust in his ongoing, justifying, sanctifying work in your life. And everyone said, that's good news. Yeah, that's good news. Let's pray.